to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourselves. That the shame of your nakedness will be, not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Worship is useless without love. We have a lot of songs in pop music and rock music and country music about lost love. You know about the song where the guy, you know, lost his love, lost his dog, lost his gun, and lost his truck, and you play that song backwards, he gets his truck, he gets his gun, he gets his dog, and he gets his wife back. Uh, we, we got all kinds of stuff about lost love. When you judge the music of our culture, if you were to take the music of our culture that deals with lost love out, you'd lose half the popular music. Judging by the music of culture... We seem to be in a love crisis. Judging by the worship in most of our churches, we are in a love crisis. We sing hymns, but don't often sing to Him. We sing choruses, but don't necessarily love the Christ to whom we sing. It's easy for us to sing about God but difficult for us to sing to Him. It's easy for us to sing songs in the third person. It's more difficult for us to worship God in the first person. For us to turn our hearts, my heart, your heart to God and worship Him with all our heart. Before, when we do that, we have developed a level of intimacy that few Christians seem to experience. It's a love crisis, a lost love crisis. And the truth of the matter is, until we get our love back, our worship and our work are never going to be what God wants them to be. A.W. Tozer said, We are missing the genuine and sacred offering of ourselves and our worship to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice the condition of this church. They were very similar to the story that we looked at two weeks ago of Mary and Martha. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. 
Martha busy in the kitchen, and she comes in and rebukes the Lord, and he says to her, Martha, Martha, you're, you're worried and concerned about so many things, but only one thing is needful. You see, Laodicea was concerned about their busyness and about their calendar, and they wanted to keep it all full. But there's a problem, see. There's a prophecy given about that church that is being fulfilled, even in the church today. They were poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked. And Jesus said, it's so bad that it nauseates me. Now, you can read those verses in any translation of the Bible you want to read them in, and they still don't sound pretty. We have this picture of Jesus as the meek and lowly Jesus who never raised his voice, who never had a compassionate anger, loving anger about anything, who always patted everybody on the back. But Jesus is a holy Jesus. And a holy Jesus hates sin. And a holy Jesus confronts sin in the lives of those he loves. That's what he says in verse 19. Those I love. I reprove and discipline. If you don't reprove and discipline your children, you don't love them. You have to reprove and discipline those that you love. And if we are the children of God, then we receive the reproof and discipline of God. This church has <coughs> come to the point of holding the distinction of being the only church that the Lord had nothing good to say about. Can you imagine a church with a staff and with a budget and with facilities and with all kinds of programs, and yet when Jesus does his evaluation of that church, he says, I can't find one good thing to say about you. In fact, he condemns them. There's a problem, and it's summed up in two phrases. You say, and you do not know. Oh, you say we're rich and have need of nothing, yet you do not know that you are poor and blind and naked and miserable. Their estimation and the Lord's estimation were poles apart. They were bragging about their buildings, about their budget, about their preachers, about their programs, instead of mourning about their sin. And they had come to believe that, that if they could say, we are rich and have need of nothing, it implies the blessings of God. Thomas Aquinas, one of the early centuries of the church, was walking through with the Pope. And the Pope said to Thomas Aquinas, Thomas you notice that the church no longer has to say, silver and gold have I none. And Thomas Aquinas said to the Pope and said, neither can she say, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. They thought they had it made. They thought everything looked good. All their balance sheets and all their figures and all their estimations were good. But Jesus said, you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Look at Richard Mayhew's quote. The church could be described as sentimental, skin-deep, flabby, anemic, proud, humanly respectable, secular, and self-sufficient, which Christ finds nauseating. They were self-satisfied. We have need of nothing. Lord, you don't even need to come to church today. We've got it all figured out. Lord, you don't need to be in my Sunday school class. I've already got the lesson prepared. Lord, you don't have to be in our committee meeting. We know what to do when we get in the committee meeting. After all, that's what we're supposed to do, run the church. You see, the problem with man is he's always felt deep inside he didn't need God. And the problem that happens in the church is we begin to think we can operate without the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and without a true worship and love for the Lord Jesus.
Now, their problem is you say and you do not know. Their condition is that they are wretched. They're wretched because they measure their life by human standards and human standards alone. They were not cold, literally bitter cold. They were not hot, literally boiling. They were lukewarm. This past week I was sitting down with a pastor friend and we'd been at breakfast for some time and he had about this much coffee in his cup and we'd been there about 30, 35 minutes and you know it was one of those things where you have to wave down the waitress and trip her over and beat her over the head to get her attention, you know, to try to get something. He said, excuse me, I, I, I need you to, I tell you what, don't warm up my coffee. You know, usually we say just warm it up. It had been so long. He said, could you just pour this out and get me a new cup? He said, you don't drink lukewarm coffee. Now you can drink cold coffee. You can eat coffee-flavored ice cream. I'll vote for that. You can drink hot coffee, but you don't drink lukewarm coffee. You don't drink lukewarm tea. We can drink hot tea. We drink cold tea, but we don't want lukewarm tea. Why? Because there's just something about it that just, uh, I don't know. It just, you know, you go to a water fountain and you get lukewarm water out of the water fountain. It just doesn't seem to quench your thirst. And Jesus says they are wretched. They are miserable. These people were serving God more and enjoying it less. Jesus comes to them not as an advocate, but he comes to them as an accuser to reprove and to discipline. They were poor. Now, they were rich in their sight. The layout of Sea was a banking center. They didn't have any problem with money. They could get a loan from any bank. They didn't need God. In fact, they had some big hitters that the budget wasn't made. At the end of the year, there's some people just throw the money in and make sure the budget was met. Now, they didn't need anything from God. They didn't need the cattle on a thousand hills. They didn't need gold refined by fire. They just had it all figured out. I remember uh, the church that I pastored in Oklahoma, one of the men shared with me that they built a building during the Depression. In 1932, built a four-story education building. He said, you know, there was no money in the banks, really. Nobody really had anything. We couldn't raise any money, so just four of us loaned the church money. Just the four of us. And too often, the church thinks it's rich because it has some heavy hitters or some big hitters who can come through and help out in a pinch when... God says, if you're not rich toward me, you're not rich at all. God wants us to be rich toward him. And we can be financially prosperous and be poor in the eyes of God. And they were a poor church. The Lord's prescription was, buy from me gold refined by fire. They were blind. The word literally means short-sighted. They couldn't see reality from heaven's perspective. They couldn't see themselves as they really were. They could not see their need. And here's the thing that amazes me. They could not see the Lord standing outside the door of the church trying to get in. I mean, they would go in and out of their activities, in and out of their worship services, in and out of all their meetings, and the Lord is standing on the outside of the church knocking on the door saying, is there room for me in that church? Can I come in? Can I be a part of what you're doing? I know your deeds. I know all you're doing. I've read your associational letter. I, I've read the denominational report on you. I know what you're doing. I've seen your budget print out. But what I want to know is, will you let me in? Now that you've got it all figured out, now that you know everything to do, now that you've been applauded by men, will you let me come in and have supper with you? Can I come in and be a part of your life? These people were blind. Laodicea was known for its ISAB, but these people didn't need ISAB from the corner drugstore. Jesus said, you need ISAB to anoint your eyes that you may see. You see, you can't say to the Lord, here I am, 
until you first say, woe is me. They were blind. They could not see their condition. They were naked. Laodicea was a clothing center. Many great clothes were made there. I'm sure they had great malls. I know they had a Macy's one-day sale there. I'm sure they had a Saks Fifth Avenue and a Lord and Taylor and a Neiman Marcus. Probably had a couple of Walmarts. I mean, they had it all. People showed up for church dressed in their spotless apparel, in their designer suits, in their linen, and in their cotton. This was a well-dressed congregation. No congregation dressed any better than Laodicea. They were the center of clothing. They didn't have to go way across town or to another community. Why? All the clothes were made there. They could buy them straight from the factory and get the finest clothes. And the Lord's prescription is you have need white garments that you may clothe yourself that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. You see, Jesus looked at them and he didn't see the fine outer garments. He saw the rags of their self-righteousness. By the way, it's easy for us to put on our suits and our shirts and ties and our nice dresses and our leather shoes and come and make an impression. And everybody go, ooh, like your dress. Oh, like your suit. Oh, nice tie. And at the same time, the Lord standing outside the door of the church saying, you're naked. I see through all that outward cosmetic. I see through the makeup and through the facades and through the faces that you put on and the things that you try to cover it up with, all your good deeds. I see through all of that. And before me, you're naked. There's nothing that can hide the shame that is in your life. God says to this church, you need white garments, purified garments, that you may clothe yourself. You see, they could only be purified when they were washed as white as snow in the blood of the Lamb. Now, there's a blame well, I tell you, if I, if I was in Laodicea, I'd want to say to the Lord, now, Lord, you know what our problem is? We're just in the middle of spiritual warfare. And the devil's just all over us. But that's not what the Lord said. He said, I've seen your deeds. I know your works. And you are lukewarm. What's interesting about this letter to this church is in five of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, Satan is either alluded to or mentioned directly. But in the church of Laodicea, Satan is never mentioned. The sin of the church rests entirely on the shoulders of its members. Oh, boy, we just like to blame the devil. You know, the devil made me do that. Folks, I'm becoming more and more convinced that we blame the devil for a lot of stuff that's just nothing more than our gnarly old flesh just acting up. It's just the ugliness of ourself. It's just that pride of life and the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. I'll tell you, the devil doesn't have to bother most Christians. Most of us do enough on our own without him even getting in the mix. We have to realize that Satan was not even mentioned in this church. Jesus says the blame for your condition is not because the devil made you do it. It's not because demons are working against you. The blame for your condition is you're eaten up with yourself. You're lukewarm. And you think that's satisfying. You're self-satisfied. You're rich and have need of nothing. 
There's a compromise and substitute for love. And he says, I have need of nothing. Oh, this church said, man, you know, we don't need anything. It's amazing how we, we substitute so many things and how we approve of what we do and, and condemn what other people do. You know, I've, I've defined sin for you before. Sin is what you do that I don't do that I don't approve of. You know, I, 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 I just don't like this. See, the first substitute is a separated life. People who live separated lives. And there are people who get holy by crawling in a hole. Vance Abner said the mystics were mistakes because they thought they'd get holy by isolation. Jesus said, I saved you out of a world to put you into the world to bring more people out of the world. God didn't save us to get up in a little cloister group in Montana or here or anywhere else and say, oh, let's try to keep from touching anybody that belongs to the world. Jesus rubbed shoulders with the most godless people on the face of the earth. Ugly people, vile people, sinful people, people with diseases, people eaten up with pride, people eaten up with their own fleshly lust. And Jesus walked in the midst of them and said, I can make you different if you'll let me. You see, every church has got their nasty nine and their filthy five and their dirty dozen. All the things that we don't do. You know, it's the I don't do this church. You know what, Baptists, I mean, if you've been raised, most of you have been raised Baptist or, you, you know, you got right with God and then became one. But, uh, you know, if, I mean, if you've been raised Baptist, you know what, you know what they are. I remember, I remember growing up just playing cards and dancing. I can remember people, and I'm not promoting either one, okay? Don't, don't go out there and say, the preacher said we could play cards and dance. I'm not... I'm going to tell you, I've met people who would pound the streets and scream to the top of their lungs if they knew that some Baptist kids were dancing who also have a tongue so long it can reach around three blocks and go in a skillet in the next room. say, well, excuse me, you're against dancing, but do you ever gossip about people that you know? Well, yeah, but I'm just, you know, I'm just asking people to pray intelligently, and if they don't know all the information, they can't pray like they're supposed to. You can call it anything you want to, but that's gossip. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything specifically about dancing except that David danced before the Lord, but it does say something about gossip. So I tell you what, you know, these people, these people play cards, you know, I tell you what, they're of the devil. Tell you what, so is bitterness and anger and jealousy and envy and pride and lust. You see, the separated life church, they judge by externals. God says, No, I'm judging right in here. You point your finger at all those folks, but you got some things coming out of your lips and out of your eyes and out of your heart and out of your mind that are not pleasing to me. You see, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that bothers me. It's the things in the Bible I do understand that bother me. God says, be holy. That means you can't gossip. That means you can't be jealous. That means you can't hate a person of another race. That means that you can't have envy or strife or jealousy or covetousness in your heart. And you can have all this list of things that you don't do and still not please God. In fact, let me define legalism for you. Legalism is a fleshly attitude that conforms to a code 
for the purpose of exalting self. It's a fleshly attitude that conforms to a code for the purpose of exalting self. It's look what I do and look what I don't do. Look at the quote by Warren Wiersbe. I think it's in your notes. Separation apart from worship can become and usually does become brittle piety and breeds arrogance, legalism, and an isolation from both the world and the church that is not biblical, a separated life. Secondly, sharing the gospel can be a substitute. Say, now, wait a minute. We're, 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 wait a minute now. Hold on. We're supposed to share the gospel. That's right. But you see, evangelism is an overflow of worship. And we love the Lord with all our heart. Then we love the lost. Evangelism is not learning a program or memorizing an outline or being able to quote the Roman road. Evangelism is my love for God can't keep me can, it helps me and makes me want to tell you that you can love him too. I love lost people because I love God. If I don't love lost people, it's because my love for God's not there like it ought to be. If I don't care about somebody's eternal damnation in hell, then it's because I haven't loved God enough to know that he is a holy God and he's, he's set aside two places, heaven and hell, and everybody spends eternity in one or the other. But you see, my love for God motivates me. Otherwise, I'm just trying to get hides on the wall and just trying to get status in the denomination. Oh, the big question at the convention. I mean, you baptized last year. I mean, you baptized last year. You know, our church, we baptized about 500 people. Yeah, how many of them stayed? Uh, I know one guy baptized 800 people from a crusade. He was asked six months later, said, how many of those people are in your church? He said, I can't name one. Baptisms and reaching people for Christ is not about how many people we can cram into that baptistry. It's about how many people we can mature in Jesus Christ because we love God and we love them, not just to get them in the water, but to get them on in life with Jesus. You see, if you don't love the Lord, you're just trying to get the baptistry filled. If you love the Lord, you're seeing that person as a person worthy of the investment of your life to help them to grow in Christ. Thirdly, giving to missions is a substitute. We tell people to give to missions. We tell people to go on missions. But the truth is, missions is a product of worship. And the great commandment, love God with all your heart, precedes the great commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And when you love God with all your heart, you want to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But giving to missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Loving God is the ultimate goal of the church. Number four, making disciples. Jesus chose his disciples after a night of prayer with the Father. And it is interesting that he told them their priority was to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind and all their strength. He didn't say to them, your priority is to make disciples. He said, you teach them to love God because you love God. And then they'll become disciples. Number five, and I'm going to go over this one very quickly because you don't have enough time. Serving the denomination or serving the church can be a substitute for worship. Now, I was born Southern Baptist. I was raised Southern Baptist. I'll die Southern Baptist. There'll probably be a Southern Baptist cornerstone in my mansion in heaven. But being Southern Baptist is not going to get me there. I don't get extra points with God 
because I'm Southern Baptist. I get a mailing every month, the minister's monthly mailing. And I tell you when it comes, I tell Debbie to hold my cause. I close the door. I turn off everything because I know the glory is going to come when I open this envelope. I know it's just going to fall because I've got a letter from the Brotherhood. I've got a letter from the WMU. I've got a letter from the State Church Training Director. I've got a letter from the Sunday School Director. I've got 18 conferences they want me to attend in the time that I have to give. They want me to come to this conference to learn how to do this, and they want me to go here to learn how to do this, and they want me to send five people to go do this, and they want me to go over here and do this, and they send me the calendar for the month, and I tell you, you can be in the denomination and be as busy as a one-armed paper hanger in a windstorm. You just be exhausted. I get tired reading it. I lay down on my couch and take a nap after I read that thing. It just wears me out. And there's, do you know there are 52 Sundays in the year, but Southern Baptists have 87 promotions for those 52 Sundays? We're supposed to promote Single Adult Day and Senior Adult Day and Youth Day and Children's Day and Preschool Day and uh, uh, Prevent Abortion Day and, and Brotherhood Day and WMU Day and Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong and State Mission Offering and and Christian Life Commission Day, and Race Relations Sunday, and Senior Adult Sunday. And there are churches that do that all the time. But it doesn't mean you have power with God. I could do everything on the denominational calendar, and I can speak to it because I'm the second vice president of the Georgia Baptist Convention. Who cares? Who cares? I had a guy walk up to me this week and said, aren't you somebody in the Georgia Baptist Convention? <laughs> I said, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> but you know what, folks? You can be in WMU and Brotherhood and Promise Keepers and, and you can be a deacon and you can be an usher and you can be a Sunday school teacher and you can be a choir member and you can work in extended session and you can do all those things. But if you don't do it because you love Jesus, it doesn't matter. If you're just doing it because you hope people in the church will feel good about you, it doesn't matter. Listen, there's one person you've got to please. You know who it is? It's him. When you love him, you please him. And when you please him, you want to do what he wants you to do, not what everybody tells you you've got to do. It's funny that Paul said this one thing I do. He didn't say these 45 things I dabble in. <laughs> Serving the denomination. You know, tell you what, folks, the, the presence of God is hard to define, but his absence is very easy to detect. The power of the Holy Spirit in a church is hard to define, but the absence of the Holy Spirit in the church is easy to detect. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is, is hard to put a finger on and say, oh, well, that person's doing that. But the absence of love for God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is easy to detect. Serving the denomination. Oh, I tell you, the Lord just wants to know, do you love me? Do you love me? Is your heart on fire for me? Did you hear the words of that song that Bill sang just a moment ago? Oh, rend the skies, revive us, Father. Descend, we cry, consuming fire. Help us to see all that we've needed is your power. 
Oh, send the fire, precious Father. Oh, take us to our own Gethsemane where we can see the greatness of our need. Oh, Spirit, come and drive us to our knees so that we might plead, revive us once again. Finally, the cure for lost love. I saw something in a book this past week from a guy. He said, you know, the world will never show up to see our amateur talent shows. But they will show up to see us in love with Jesus. The world's not impressed with our programs. I mean, people are not driving by the streets going, look, they're having Bible school this week. We've got to go. Maybe they've got one for adults too. I mean, some old boy that works out there at Miller's not driving by and going, I bet they've got fruit punch. <laughs> but you love those people's kids and you watch them walk through the door. I can't love all those kids. Those kids drive me crazy. You know how loud and messy it is around a church during Bible school? Yeah, and Jesus said, if you want to become mine, you become like little children. And Jesus said, Suffer, bring the little children unto me. We are most like God when we are most like little children and when we love children the way God loves them. Oh, I tell you, we do so much. And we could throw so much away because it gets down to do you love Jesus with all your heart? You know, I just want people to walk into this church and I want them to say one thing. I don't want them to say, oh, you know, nice TV ministry. I don't want them to say that. I don't want them to say, oh, great choir. I don't want them to walk out and say, boy, I love the preacher. Find out where he buys his ties. I don't want them to walk out and say, man, weren't those ushers the nicest people that you've ever met? I want them to say all that, but here's what I want them to really say. I want them to walk out and say, truly, God is in that place. God's in that place. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know how to describe it. I don't know how to express it because there's not words enough. But I know this, God is all over that place. That's what we want. That's what we ought to want. If we don't want that, then we're just wasting our time filling up our buildings and rattling out noises that God doesn't care to hear. Several things, let me tell you real quickly. First of all, set your priorities in light of His Word. Have I already got these written down? Do you have any blanks to fill out? Okay, all right, just want to make sure. Set your priorities in light of His Word, verse 18. Number two, be zealous. That means be boiling. By the way, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. You know why couples get divorced? It's not because you used to love somebody and now you hate them. It's because you used to love somebody and now you just don't care anymore. You know why churches divorce from their father? The bride separates from the groom. The church and Jesus are alienated. It's not that we hate Jesus. We just don't care enough to do anything about our love for Him anymore. Be zealous. Thirdly, repent when you are reproved. Repent when you are reproved. Now let me just share something very quickly here. 
Jesus is given three offices in the Scripture, prophet, priest, and king. I love Jesus as priest because I can go to him and I can pray to him. He ever lives to make intercession. And I can go before God without going before anybody else and share all my needs with him. I love him as king because one day he's going to reign over heaven and earth and we will be with him in his new kingdom. And he is king of kings and Lord of lords. I love him as that. But I'm going to tell you where I have a problem with Jesus. I have a problem with Jesus when he becomes prophet in my life. I don't like him when he's that way. I just get these pictures of these prophets. I don't know what they look like in the Old Testament, but I get these pictures of these leathery-skinned, steel-eyed, bony-fingered men walking up to religious leaders and the church and the temple and in the synagogue and to the to Jewish leaders of the day and to the religious leaders of the day and saying, you better repent. And they hated the prophets and they killed them. And Jesus came as a prophet, told them what would happen, and they killed him. And in the 20th century, nothing's changed. I tell you, it's tough on us when the prophet speaks to us. It gets a little hard. It's tough on us when somebody who has that ability to speak like a prophet speaks into my life and says, you know what, there's something you need to work on. I don't like it. I've asked God to change my spiritual gift several times. My spiritual gift is a gift of prophet. And I, there have been several times I said, Lord, I'd just like to be a nice guy sometimes. I don't like being a prophet all the time. Sometimes it's hard when the prophet speaks to us. But if the prophet speaks the truth, it's not the prophet's words, it's the words of the Lord. You know, Vance Havner taught me something. He mentored me for the last 10 years of his life. Really what I consider the last of a breed of great prophets. And I asked him one time about, you know, that scripture that says, reprove, rebuke, and correct. How does that apply? And what happens when people don't like that? And he made this statement to me. It's a statement that he's used in several of his books. He's made this statement. He said, you know, he said, when you throw a rock at a group of dogs, the only dog that yells is the one that gets hit. And you know who screams loud when prophets speak? People who don't want prophets to speak. And we complain, but you know, one of the roles of Jesus is to reprove. He says, I love you, and therefore I reprove you and discipline you and tell you to be zealous and repent. That's the next one. Repent when you're reproved. Open the door of your heart and let him in is verse 20, the fourth one. Fifthly, let Jesus feed you. I will dine with him and he with me. Lastly, listen to what the Lord tells you as he feeds you. He who has ears... Let him hear. I picked this up this week in New Orleans, or as they say, Nolens, uh, and, and I've had it in my pocket ever since because it, it made a real impression on me. I was in a store, and I was looking around, and I just saw this laying on the counter, and there were two of them. 
and it was just kind of laying there, and I really didn't notice, and I came back, and I thought, I wonder what that is, and I picked it up, and I read it. And I thought, that's it. It says, do it right the first time. Do it right the first time. You say, well, what does that have to do with spiritual things? You've only got one life, folks. If you don't live your life in love with Jesus Christ, you're never going to have another life to live for Him. This is it. This is your one chance to worship. This is your one chance to serve. This is your one chance to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength on this earth because you're never going to have another chance. There's no dress rehearsal. There's no reruns. There's no rewind. I cannot change the last 43 years of my life, but I can do it right the first time starting today. And so can you. You see, it won't matter when you're buried if the church walks by and says, well, you know, they served on that committee, and I tell you, I don't know what we'd have done with them out on that committee if your kids can't walk by and say, my daddy loved Jesus with all his heart. It won't matter if they walk by and they say, oh, what a wonderful person. They gave themselves so much to community service if they can't say they love Jesus with all their heart. Do all those other things. That's fine. But do it birthed out of your love for Jesus or don't do it at all.